Recall Paul may be wrapped up in the next 10 or 12 messages or so. And we'll go into Romans, the epistle, for which I, I covet much prayer. Romans. But we're going to polish off Better Call Paul with a study in Romans 11. There are many other passages we could deal with on the heights of Paul's teaching. We could go to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, and a couple other passages. But we've already kind of done that in Rev the book. So we'll uh, leave that because that's... Once we finish Romans 11, and then I have to tackle a small series on the pastoral epistles within the Better Call Paul, and that will be our extraordinary lead-in to studying Romans as a whole epistle. I have a little theory that I think might break us out of the pack of commentators in the past century or so, and but more than that, just help you out in your spiritual lives. That's what it's all about. Romans 11 just to pick, catch us up to speed, tonight's message will be on the first fruits and the whole, H, that's W-H-O-L-E, the first fruits and the whole of Israel, Romans eleven sixteen. But we'll begin by 13 and then get up to par. Let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in which you, A, called us into fellowship with your dear Son, and in which you do not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able. Both of these are attributable to your faithfulness, and we thank you. And therefore, we have confidence in your plan, in your provision, in your providence, mostly in your person through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask then that we will gain more of a glimpse of the glory, the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that shines from his face through the word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Romans eleven thirteen. but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles says, meaning to Gentile Christians in Rome, but also in our own time as we will demonstrate. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I am expanding the range of my ministry, if by doing so I may provoke my flesh. It's Israel after the flesh, fellow Israelites, the hardened part of Israel, to jealousy and save some of them. Where you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and it does, incidentally, What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul is saying the life from the dead is a divine action that can involve no human contribution, no creaturely contribution. And so the eschatological total salvation of Israel will be equivalent to the miracle of resurrection from the dead. It will be an act of God, and the hint here is that it will be an instantaneous salvific act of God. And the hint also here is that that total salvation of all of Israel 
will occur simultaneously with their resurrection from the dead, the bodily resurrection of the dead, which includes the transference of living human beings at the parousia into glorified bodies at the same time. So provoking to jealousy. One of the most important points that we discovered in this is that Paul expects the salvation of some of his kinsmen after the flesh, hardened Israel, during the course of this evil age itself. That's a remarkable miracle. But he expects the salvation of all at the close of this age. The close of this age, the eschaton, the parousia, the coming of Christ. For you see, he says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? That means the total acceptance of Israel, but life from the dead. For if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. I'm going to approach this subject carefully, and it might take more than one message. If the first fruits offered up are holy. Now, as we used our dear feet and negotiated the high place of 1 Corinthians 15, we noticed that the first fruits was Christ in resurrection. And we could apply this, I think, across that divide between 1 Corinthians written before Romans and Romans. There, the first fruits is Christ. And because he is holy, so is the whole batch of dough, which means all of humanity in resurrection. And that's a sign of total salvation. And if the first fruits offered up, and Christ was offered up on the cross, he offered himself up for us without spot to God, and he is the first fruits. If he's the first fruits, so is the whole batch of dough, as it were, or the whole resurrection harvest. And this is in accord with 1 Corinthians one thirty that God, it is God's doing, and that's really part of a paraphrase, but part of a true translation. It is God's doing that you are in Christ. And God has made him to be for us wisdom and sanctification or holiness. He is holiness for us. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough, all the rest of us. And he has made him to be redemption and righteousness or total deliverance. So, if, but for if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root, Paul is amazing. He, in, in his skill here, he puts two analogies into play. One comes from the Torah, the law. The second one comes from the prophets, Jeremiah. The first one, the batch of dough, the first fruits and the batch of dough is the so-called heave offering, which is after the Jews get into the land, Numbers 15, 17 to 21, teaches the instruction to offer the first fruits of the harvest. And the first fruits are considered to be holy. And that comes from, again, Numbers 15, 17 to 21. But the second, the root analogy in connection with the olive tree and the branches comes from Jeremiah, the prophets. Jeremiah 
chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. There's almost a kind of a correlation numerically. Jeremiah's, Jeremiah 11, 16 to 19, Romans 11, 16 to 19, the, the root and the first fruits. And this goes back all the way to Romans 1, 2, because God's son, the gospel which is about God's son, is testified to by the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. And here, therefore, there's a hidden radical Christocentricity that I hope will be unfolded. This is the daring part of the exegesis. This goes past the pack of commentators a little bit on the racetrack. So Paul skillfully puts two analogies in play here. One comes from the Torah regarding the heave offering. And that's significant because the heave offering is sort of involves a vertical motion, the wave offering, the, the vertical or horizontal motion. But that's, I decided to cut away a lot of this stuff about the roots of the heave offering and just say that this, it comes from Numbers 15, 17 to 21. And he puts another analogy in play from the prophets, namely Jeremiah. Regarding Israel, metaphorically, as an olive tree. Now remember, the apostle is still arguing here, and he is arguing, for the fact that God has not rejected his whole people, Israel. He has not rejected Israel in toto, Israel as his people, including the hardened part. And the hardening of Israel is not permanent, It is temporary, and it is not total, it's partial. And so the branches broken off are equivalent to the hardened part of Israel. And so the branches broken off is not a permanent action. It's a divine action. God gave them a spirit of stupor. He made them hard and callous. He did that with a salvific purpose of bringing in the pagans and then all Israel will be saved. So God is, this is occasioning one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture. I'm almost using quite a bit of discipline not to get into the pastoral epistles because I think that the treatment that we're going to give the pastoral epistles goes beyond the treatment that's been given to them in the past, again, by very excellent scholars. The only reason I say that is I don't say I'm surpassing the scholars that I've studied in the past. I'm simply saying I'm glad that they're there to be the bridge that goes further, to be, as we used the analogy before, to stand on their shoulders, to see further. So it, they expect it. Scholars in the past expect it, whether it's called Karl Barth or whether it is Paul Menier or whether it's Leander Keck or whether it is... Jürgen Moltmann, we are expected to go beyond, and we are. The idea here, the, the apostle again is still arguing this central point. God has not rejected his whole people Israel, including the present hardened part. Those who said crucify him, those who said we have no other king but Caesar, we have no king but Caesar. Those who rejected the messianic Davidic king. God has not rejected them. 
And that hardened part in Paul's day constituted a clear majority of Israelites, a clear majority of Jews in Paul's time. The heave offering then involved the presentation to God of the first fruits in harvest time. The first fruits is, if you want to take it singular, or are, if you want to take it plural, the first fruits, let's call it singular because it's intended to be singular, the first fruits is considered to be holy by God. In this case, and this is a strange twist, this is what, there's a new phrase now that people use, he flipped the script on me. And that's exactly what Paul does. He flips the script. In other words, what he does in some places is make the whole is holy because the first part is holy. So the whole is holy because of the part. But he flips the script here and says the first fruits are holy because the whole is holy. The entirety is holy. And so the first fruits, or if you take a lump of dough from which to bake the meal offering, you take from the loaf of dough a cake that would be the first fruits, that cake is holy because the whole batch that it was taken from is holy. So Paul flips the script here. And that's what really tricked me. That's why I've been really kind of holding off on teaching this verse because I've been wrestling in my mind with this verse for several weeks now. And so he flips the script. But Paul, in flipping the script, teaching that sometimes the part sanctifies the whole, and sometimes the whole sanctifies the part, proving both of those, the script and the flipped script, you got an airtight case here of the salvation of all of Israel. Either way, you look at it. It's an airtight case. It's like the scales of Leviathan or the alligator, the scales of the crocodile. They're so close together that no air can get between. Paul makes an airtight case for the salvation of all of Israel. And he throws into this two analogies at once. And you're almost saying, Paul, cool it, will you? I mean, just let me get one thing together here. And he throws in two analogies. He puts them in play in his argument. So the heave offering involved the presentation to God of the first fruits in harvest time. The first fruits are considered to be holy by God in this case because the whole batch from which it is taken is holy. That's why we should translate verse 16 this way. If if the first fruits offered up to God, referring to the so-called heave offering in the harvest time, so is the whole batch of dough that is from which it was taken. There's a flipped script here. See, I thought and took it for granted already that the first fruits sanctify the whole. And yet Paul flips the script here, which drives me crazy, because he's not saying the part sanctifies the whole. He's saying the part is holy because the whole from which the part was taken is holy. Meaning God has unconditionally elected all of Israel, and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's nothing you Gentile Christians can do about it by boasting that branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in. Paul says, if that's true, then God is pretty capricious and he might take you out too. So maybe you should, as this message is coming up that I'm also building, curb your enthusiasm. If your enthusiasm is about a good thing, enthusiasm is a good thing. But if it's about a mis 
misplaced idea, it's not a good thing. There's a lot of Christian enthusiasm today that is not a good thing. It's a zeal without knowledge. It's a zeal without the knowledge of the righteousness of God, which is the divine act of deliverance that does not require help from the desperate creation. Thank God. The majority of Christianity that I've witnessed and been part of basically has a gospel that you participate as desperate creation. You participate in your own salvation. It's not purely a divine act. So it's not purely Christocentric. And so you can use the word Christocentric all you want as a phony Pharisee. It doesn't cut the mustard. It's not there. It's not God's gospel. And I'm not saying that to be divisive. Paul says some very hard things in Romans. As the writer in Hebrews says some very tough, sharp things. It's not with a view of dividing. It's with a view to uniting what's already terribly fragmented and divided. The only thing that's going to bind the church together is a recognition of the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God being revealed through the gospel. That's going to draw the attention of all the fragmented parts of the body of Christ. This will bring unity. This will bring unity. And that is one of Paul's aims. But you see, I'm going to take, and this is, I'm trying to communicate my vision for Romans because it's in my heart already. And I know when that happens, there's no turning back. But in Romans, there are theories put forth. And you read, and they're dynamite theories, including the latest that I read was Douglas Campbell's, which is the, he believes that Romans should be interpreted based on the fact that Paul is having a dialectic with the teacher. And that's true. But there's a circle bigger than that, and that theme is subordinate to a bigger theme. That's my theory. And it's going to be put forth to you. Paul Menear, I'm reading his now, called The Obedience of Faith. Very short book for those of you that are reading books. It's very short, but it's chock full of wisdom. He believes that Romans 14 and 15 reveals the purpose for God writing that there are five groups of Christians in Rome. And he's writing in such a way to rebuke and reprove, correct and align each of those groups until there is unity. So that when he gets there to have support, for his trip to Spain, for the Spanish mission, he'll come to a unified church. That's true. There are many theories about the purpose of Paul in Romans, and they're all good, but they're, I think they are circles within circles within circles, and we have a bigger circle that we're going to hit, at least bigger. And that means all these other themes are good. They're all good. But there's a larger purpose of Paul in all of this that I think is going to subsume or sublate all these other themes. In other words, recognize their value. And yet, it seems like this phrase hit me a while ago, go beyond, which we're always intending to do and we always must do. If you don't keep going onward and upward, you go backward and downward. There's no way around it. So, in this case, the first fruits are considered to be holy by God. In this case, because the whole batch from which it's taken is holy. But when he gets to the root in the branches, he says that the branches are holy 
because of the root. So he hits the analogy both ways. He flips the script, but either way you read the script, all of Israel is involved in God's salvific purpose. And this is to curb the enthusiasm of Gentile Christians who think they have, quote, replaced Israel. When I first hit the Israel of God, I was accused by some pastors and fellow believers as bringing replacement theology. And that's not at all what I was doing. That's not at all. I never said Israel of God were Gentiles replacing Jews. Not at all. But there was a distinction between the Israel of God and the Israel after the flesh. But now I'm saying that Israel after the flesh, even in its distinction from the Israel of God, will be saved. And to let you know how bad the misunderstanding of this Gentile arrogance can be, consider the Holocaust. If you don't think these are weighty matters. So then, the idea here is that all of Israel is considered holy, from which the first fruits is taken. In another consideration, the whole is considered holy because the first fruits are holy. In the first case, the whole sanctifies the first fruits or the part. We could say the whole sanctifies the part. In the second case, the part sanctifies the whole. So the script and the flipped script are both saying the same thing. All Israel will be saved. Gentiles, curb your misplaced, boasting, arrogant zeal and enthusiasm. Because if God's done to Israel what you say God's done to Israel, there's nothing stopping him doing that to you too. Because you have a capricious God, and I mean G-O-D with a small g. A lot of people are worshiping a God who's not the God of the Bible. A God who's not the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the God that is manifested in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ says, this is my Father. I am. You see me, you see my Father. There is another God altogether. There is a hidden idolatry that is rampant today. And there's a whole lot of enthusiasm, therefore, that needs to be curbed. And by curbed, the classic definition, restrained. Or even put aside. I know there's a funny TV series based on that term. That's why Better Call Paul has a series based on that, too. So you say, I'm just trying to reach into the contemporary setting, you see. But anyways, In the second case, the part, the first fruit, sanctifies the whole or even comprises the whole. In the case of Christ being the first fruits, he actually comprises the whole. And we'll see that he comprises ultimately the whole of Israel, the whole of the nations, the whole of humankind, the whole of created reality in toto. So that God will be all in all. Now... The point is that all of Israel is under the unconditional election of God. And all of Israel, as Paul boldly states in 1126, will be saved. Now, someone will say, then why does Paul have continuous grief and sorrow in his heart about his fellow kinsmen? 
Because even though he knows there's ultimate salvation for them, he has to see them now losing out on so much infinite treasure that it breaks his heart. You can be a believer and have the greatest hope and also have grief constant in your heart for certain people that are missing out, people that you love, maybe people in your family, people of your own flesh, people in your community, people in your nation, people in the church at large. So it's possible to have great hope and great joy and also bear continuous grief in this life. I'm saying that so that you won't think you're abnormal if you experience sorrows and griefs and sometimes continuous. Our identification with Christ in this mortal life, the cross and the crucifixion, the downward trajectory weighs much heavier in our lives than the upward trajectory. Christians who say that it's all about just the victory and the triumph better curb their enthusiasm because they are avoiding identification with the cross of Christ. So there's a lot of enthusiasm that needs to be curbed. Paul's picking on the Gentiles right now. He did the same thing to his fellow Israelites. He said they have, I testify, they have enthusiasm. But it's without knowledge because they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And they've tried to establish their own righteousness. And they don't know that Christ is the end of Torah for righteousness as a means of deliverance. And so even though he comes to this ecstatic conclusion, he's still got to see fellow Jews, fellow Israelites walking around in rejection of Jesus Christ. It still grieves my heart to hear the name of Jesus Christ blasphemed both in Christian worship services and in by Hollywood. It still grieves. Of course it does. Because you're seeing people missing out and not knowing if they only knew the name they're talking about. If they only knew the curse, they're, they're, if the name Jesus Christ and what he's done for them, what he is for them, what he did on the cross for them. And of course it grieves your heart. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have grief, sorrow, pain, trials, temptations. In fact, one place Paul says, you better stop boasting and being arrogant and maybe start fearing. Be afraid. That means enter into the awesome reverence for God who his love is there. But behold, both the goodness and the severity of God, even though his Wrath is in service of his love. I stand in awe of his wrath. I stand in awe of his love that's greater than his wrath, which his wrath serves. That's the kind of thing we ought to have more of. For the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh, the awesome respect that involves a little bit of, I don't want to get too close to him in one sense. In other words, I don't want to be too familiar with him. So the point is that all Israel is under the unconditional election of God and that all of Israel, as Paul boldly states, will be saved, but only when the pagan pleroma comes in first. Romans eleven twenty-five. The idea with the olive tree and the root and the branches is to rebuke the zealous or enthusiastic notion of some Gentile Christians 
that because branches were broken off from Israel's cultivated olive tree to make room for the Gentiles, that somehow now Gentile Christians bear the root. They sustain the root. And Paul says, but you better realize that it's the root that sustains you, not you sustaining the root. Israel sustains you. And beneath Israel, the God of Israel, the Israel that is Jesus Christ, sustains you. You don't sustain him. If you're going to say that your works bring salvation, you think you're sustaining Christ. So he says... Somehow, irrationally, then, Gentile Christians think they bear the root of that tree and have some kind of priority over hardened Israel. But as Paul shows shortly as the punchline of this second analogy in Romans eleven eighteen, looking forward, you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. So it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek or what I would say the Greco-Roman. It's to the Jew first and then to the Greco-Roman or the pagan or the outsider from Israel. First Romans 1.16 and 2.10. So it is still the Jew first on one hand. But on the other hand, the Greco-Roman is first and then eschatological and climactically the Jew. The Jew who is first in election will be last in eschatological salvation. So if you picture this way, because he must wait, as it were, he has to hold the door open and wait for all the Gentiles to come in. That's just a metaphor, a, a depiction of what Paul's saying. It's a vision of what he's saying. The Jew who is first in election will be last in eschatological salvation because he must wait for the influx of the Pleroma of the Gentiles. So here there are no, and this is my word of the day, one of these days, it was called blandishment. And I said, what's blandishment? And it means flattery. And so I said, let me use the word in my study. There are no blandishments or flattery offered to the Jews or the Gentiles by Paul. Paul doesn't offer blandishments. He doesn't flatter. It's one thing to edify and encourage, and that's a remarkable gift, but not flattery. Paul doesn't flatter. There are no blandishments offered to the Jews or the Gentiles. The glory belongs solely and only to God through Jesus Christ and through the sanctifying Holy Spirit. So again, then Romans eleven sixteen a note this: For if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. The understanding is from which it was taken. Please note this phrase then. So is the whole batch from which it is taken. That's how I translate this. The idea here is not that the whole is holy because of the first fruits, but that the whole is holy from which the first fruits are taken. This is where he flips the script. In other places, the first fruits, if it's Christ, sanctifies the whole. But here, the whole is sanctifying the part which means that God has unconditionally elected the whole of Israel and the remnant taken out of Israel is holy because the whole is holy. It reverses our thinking in a lot of ways here, and I love it. It exercises the brain. It exercises the mind. 
And so the idea here is not that the whole, W-H-O-L-E, is holy because of the first fruits, but that the whole is holy from which the first fruits are taken. In other words, all of Israel is holy, including the hardened, including the broken off branches, because, not because rather, something is due them, D-U-E, not because something is due to them from God, but because of God's unconditional election, which is mediated solely through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The idea continues to pertain with respect to the Gentiles who are grafted in to the cultivated olive tree that is Israel. Paul says, you guys are a wild olive tree growing out in the field somewhere. Israel is a cultivated olive tree because they've been cultivated by Yahweh himself, planted, pruned, cared for, watered, loved that tree, and all the branches. And so again, the idea continues to pertain with respect to the Gentiles who are grafted in supernaturally to the cultivated olive tree. Now, Paul's been criticized, I said Sunday, because agriculturally or horticulturally or botanically, this may not be accurate. But Paul isn't making a horticultural point or an agricultural point. He's making a supernatural point. He's talking about God doing things that are beyond nature, past nature, not unnatural, but supernatural. So here's one of the supernatural functions. The Gentiles are holy because the root that bears them is holy. And so this ought to curb their enthusiasm if indeed their enthusiasm arises from conceit and from the misinformed notion that Israel has been rejected. It's like a football team saying we're better than the ones we just beat and they celebrate and they triumph over them and they mock them and then they lose the next 15 games and the team that they mocked wins the next 15 games. That's what Gentile Christian enthusiasm is like. It's a triumphalism, like I'm better than this person. I'm more, I'm better placed than this person is. So Paul's saying, you guys better watch out. And so if their enthusiasm arises from conceit and from the misinformed notion that Israel has been rejected permanently, that's a misinformed notion. They've been rejected permanently to make room for the Gentile Christians to be accepted permanently. That's an enthusiasm they got to repent from. It's an enthusiasm they should be restrained from. They should repent from. If the rejection of Israel by God is permanent, then his election of them in the first place is impermanent, not permanent. Therefore, the Gentiles ought to fear that they too can be rejected and that their election is impermanent and subject to a capricious God, small g. And he's not that way. He did not permanently reject Israel. If he did, then he elected them permanently, then rejected them permanently, 
and he's not true to his own essence. He elected them permanently and rejected them impermanently in order to bring the Gentiles in permanently, but not at the expense of the branches broken off. Now, God did, ultimately, when it talks about sparing the branches, God didn't spare his only son. That's who's not spared in all of this. He didn't spare his only son, and having not spared him, but given him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things in him? Give all of us everything because of him. If the rejection of Israel by God is permanent, then his election of them in the first place is impermanent. Therefore, the Gentiles ought to fear that they too can be rejected and that their election is impermanent. In other words, if you're believing the way you're believing, you should be afraid that God's going to do the same thing to you or could do the same thing to you. So in 1 Corinthians 15, which we taught on before, the first fruits in resurrection is Christ, whom we can say sanctifies the whole harvest, which is the rest of humanity in resurrection. The, this analogy, therefore, in Romans 11, flips the script. In this case, the first fruit sanctifies the whole harvest in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and more importantly, the first fruits is Christ. More importantly, the first fruits is Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Christ is identified as the first fruits overtly. Here, he's under the surface to be revealed and discovered. And that's what we're doing tonight and in subsequent messages. If we flip the script on the first fruits analogy, in Romans eleven sixteen, the first fruits ultimately is Christ, even as the root is also Christ. Now, ultimately, the root is Christ because remember when we taught Revelation, I think we have a great advantage teaching Revelation first because the last time Jesus identifies himself, his self-identification is in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus... And the root and the offspring of David. Then he says, I am the bright morning star. When he says bright morning star, he is as much as saying, I'm also the root of Jacob and the star that arises from Jacob. And so many of the commentators say, Well, the patriarchs are the root. The patriarchs are the first fruits, and they, they sanctify all of Israel, and there is a sense where that's true. But more so, Christ is the root of the patriarchs. So he's the ultimate root that bears the root that bears the branches. He is the ultimate first fruits that bears the first fruits that sanctifies the whole harvest. Christ himself. There is a radical Christocentricity. In Paul, sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert, but it's always there, just like your spiritual life. It's hid with Christ in God.
And I'm grateful for that because the majority of my spiritual life is hid with Christ in God. There's parts of my life that neighbors and friends might say, you call yourself a Christian and look at this. Well, you don't see the hidden part. You can look at David's actions and say, how could he be a man of God? And then you have to read the Psalms, which is his hidden heart. Not that I'm comparing myself with David. I, I haven't uh, killed anybody lately. Or, uh, but, you know, if you think about it, you've done it. Now, in fact, hatred is equivalent to murder in the eyes of God. So that's First John three fourteen and following. So we're talking about some relativities here. But there is, in all of us, we have still a measure of control over us by sin, still a measure of control over us by the flesh. We still have that. But the hidden part where our lives are hid with Christ in God, and when he who is our life appears, we will appear with him in glory. Then they won't be able to say, you call yourself a Christian. They'll say, obviously, you're a Christian. And they might even look around and say, and so am I. Now here, but anyways, let's look at Romans 11, 16 again. Look at it now. Now, if the first fruits, that's aparche, remember, from 1 Corinthians, are holy, so is the whole batch of dough from which it was taken. The allusion is to the so-called heave offering of Numbers fifteen seventeen to 21. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Hoi kladoi, the branches. Found in Jeremiah eleven sixteen in the Septuagint translation, the same words as Romans eleven seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and 24. And so the allusion to the first fruits comes from Numbers 15. I'll just read this very briefly from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Numbers 15, 17. The Lord instructed Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, quote, after you enter the land where I am bringing you, a divine action, you are to offer a contribution to the Lord. When you eat from the food of the land, you are to offer a loaf from your first batch of dough. And that's aparkein furamatos, your first batch of dough, as a contribution. Offer it just like a contribution from the threshing floor. Throughout your generations, you are to give the Lord a contribution from the first batch of your dough. And there were, he uses the word furum, furama, which I think there is a play on words here with furama and pleroma. And so, again, I want to just emphasize this point. Though in one sense the patriarchs, as we see from Romans eleven twenty eight down the road, the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in one sense, the patriarchs are the first fruits, and Israel is the whole batch. In the ultimate sense, Christ is the first fruits as the seed of the patriarchs. He's not only the seed of Abraham, he's the source of Abraham. He's the root of the patriarchs as well as the offspring. And so if we're speaking in ultimate terms, the first fruits is Christ, 
And we could even say that Christ is holy because the whole people from which he was taken, which is Israel, is holy. But we could also say more emphatically that all of Israel is holy because God has made him, Christ, to be sanctification for all of Israel and for all of us, all the Gentiles, all the nations, all creation. See what I'm aiming at here? I'm aiming at Christ being manifested here. When I first got saved in the University of Vermont, I was thinking of this, and there was a a guy that was known as an LSD salesman. He was always tripping. Now that new saying, are you tripping? We used to say that, but it meant, are you on LSD? And this guy heard about my testimony. And there's a little thing that happens to people on LSD. They have what they call a glimpse of Jesus. They get so high that they think they see Jesus. And so I won't say his name because hopefully he's a different man now. But he came to my room one night and he said, hey, I heard you got a glimpse of Jesus. Like he's going to say, where did you get that stuff? And I thought about that on the car ride down here on the way down here. And I thought, if he only knew that the rest of my life from that moment on was trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus, trying to see his face through the mirror of the word, trying to see. And I should have said back then, well, yeah, I did. But it wasn't through chemical means. It was through a divine action. But it was interesting that he took a road all the way to my house, all the way to my dorm. He came all the way over to my dorm. I think he thought I had better stuff than he was selling. Now, a lot of those people have had their conscience altered since then. I never used that stuff. I won't tell you what I did use, but I didn't use. But I see, in, in fact, people that are still my age, they're still, their, conscience, their consciousness has been altered to the point where they accept certain ideologies that are weird and they're bizarre. And it's partly due to the chemical things they did to their brain in college. So that's just a warning for parents and for grandparents. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that can alter somebody forever. And God's salvation will come, but you might have to go through one hell of a lot of grief. So be careful. Be watchful. Watch for signs. Watch for it. Be aware. Be aware. Read up on it, whatever you have to do. There's, it's all together, two available, and I'm talking fourth grade available. I mean fourth grade elementary school. Be careful. Watch, be watchful, and be attentive as parents. And sometimes parents aren't, so grandparents have to be attentive. Okay, that's just a side pastoral note. No charge. So I'm going to close by asking five questions about the first fruits because this word first fruit pops up some places. In fact, it pops up in Romans 8.23 where Paul calls us, the church, the body of Christ, the first fruits of the spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, but he's poured it out on yours. You're the first fruits of the spirit. The first fruits of the spirit means the church. The church is a prolepsis of a universal community. It's an anticipation of a universal community. But you're the first fruits of the Spirit. 
So I have five questions that I've asked of Paul, and I've asked really of myself, but I've asked really ultimately God. One, are the patriarchs the first fruit, as A.T. Robertson says? A.T. Robertson comes out and says the patriarchs are the first fruits, and Abraham singly is the root. I don't agree with that, but I ask the question, are the patriarchs the first fruit, according to A.T. Robertson in his word pictures on this verse, and is the root Abraham singly as a, as a patriarch? So far, the, the answer to that is an obvious no, but I want to ask it anyway. Secondly, what about the remnant according to the election of grace? Is that not a first fruits of a kind? And in the context in Romans eleven five and 6, I think it is. The remnant according to the election of grace is holy, Because the whole batch from which it was taken, Israel, is holy. And so we can consider the first fruits in connection with the remnant according to the election of grace in Romans 11, 5, and 6. And ultimately, the elect one in Isaiah 42, 1 is Jesus Christ. He is elect. Peter says he was truly foreknown. You were foreknown in the mind of God, but Jesus was foreknown intimately by the Father face to face forever. He was verily, truly foreknown, and therefore he was elected. Jesus Christ has a destiny. He has a future. And the Bible is all about Jesus Christ's future, not yours, not mine, not first, not us first. It's about Jesus Christ's future. And good news, you're part of his future. You're part of Jesus Christ's future. And eschatology is about the future of Jesus Christ. And the future of Jesus Christ is that he comprises all of created reality and he comprises all of humanity. Even as now, he only comprises the first fruits of the spirit, the church, the body of Christ. So, Ultimately, Christ, the elect one, has to be, under that consideration, the first fruits. Third question, again, what about the first fruits of the Spirit? And I mentioned that first, but I mean it third. So the first question has to do with the patriarchs. The second has to do with the remnant according to the election of grace. Third, what about the first fruits of the Spirit? That is, the church which is Christ's body the community that is already comprised of Christ. Could we not say that that is a first fruits of all of humanity, the first fruits of the spirit? The church is holy, and therefore the all of humanity is holy in God's eyes. The church is already comprised of Christ, however, For as Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all and he's in you all. Christ comprises you all. They are holy, that is we are holy, because we have been sanctified in Christ whom God has made to be sanctification for them and for us. Again, a key verse here is 1 Corinthians 1.30. They and we are called saints, sanctified ones. They are in the Holy One. He comprises them as he is destined to comprise all things. 
which Irenaeus rightly saw from Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. So this is Jesus Christ's destiny. This is his eschatological future, as it is the Father's eschatological future to be all in all. The Father has a future. The Son has a future. And his future includes you. His future means comprising you. So the fourth question I ask, what about Christ, the Son of Man, who calls himself in Revelation 3.14 the beginning of the creation of God? The beginning of the creation of God. Let's liken that word beginning with the first fruits. If he's the first fruits of the creation of God, then the whole of the creation is holy because the beginning of it is holy. The the beginner of creation and the beginning of the new creation by resurrection is holy, so the whole creation is holy. The first fruits sanctifies the whole. And the fifth question is, what about hardened Israel then and the patriarchs? And for that, look briefly to Romans eleven twenty-eight and 29. Paul says this, and this is remarkable to me. Hardened Israel, broken off branches. Hardened Israel who will have their stony hearts removed, so it's only temporary. Broken off branches that Paul says will be grafted in again, so it's only temporary. Hardened Israel, right now, Paul says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, Gentile Christians. They're enemies for your advantage. Who made them enemies? God gave them a spirit of stupor. Who did? God did. They didn't give it to themselves. He said, hearing they will not hear. Seeing, they will not see. That's a pronouncement of God. That's a divine action. Lest lest they should be converted. I'm preventing their conversion. Lest I should heal them. Is that permanent? Of course not. It's holding the door open for all the Gentiles. Then he saves the Jews. All of them. In a moment, just like he raised Christ from the dead in a moment as a fiat of omnipotent love, so he saves all of Israel. You say, how does he do that? How does it, what are the mechanics of that? I don't know. I really don't care to know. I just know he's going to do it. It's a thing bigger than I can imagine, bigger than we can imagine. It's bigger than the imagination, although it challenges the imagination. So regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved. Who's loved? The branches. They are loved because of their forefathers. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Irrevocable. So regarding the enemy, regarding the gospel, God made them enemies for your advantage so that Gentiles could come in. But regarding election, they're loved because of the forefathers. Listen to these verses as I close to illustrate the point that they hardened Israel are loved and that loved means elected. Love and election mean the same thing. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated or rejected for now. 
But then Esau is also elected. They are loved or still elected because of their forefathers, the patriarchs. So look what Deuteronomy 4 says. You can even turn there to see it with your own eyes because you'll say, I have to see that with my own eyes. If I just say it, you'll say, I, have to, I won't believe it until I see it. So believe it when you see it. Deuteronomy 4.37. Moses speaking to Israel. Because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants after them and brought you up out of Egypt by his presence and great power. He brought you up out of Egypt. He'll say that over and over again in Deuteronomy, which is Deutero, second, nomos, law. It's a remembrance book. He brought you up out of Egypt. He brought Christ up from the dead. Salvation is of the Lord. He split the Red Sea. You had nothing to do with it. How about Deuteronomy 7, 8? But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery. That becomes the great metaphor for our salvation from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How about Deuteronomy nine twenty seven when God Moses is talking to God this time, like he did in in Exodus 32, appealing to him. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Disregard this people's stubbornness and their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, those in the land you brought us from will say, Because the Lord wasn't able to bring them into the land, he promised them. And because he hated them, he brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. In other words, you want to kill Israel and start over with me, then Egyptians are going to say that you brought them out just to kill them instead of save them, that you hate them instead of love them. God's saying, I was waiting for you to say that. Because, of course, that's not what my intention was. So thank you, Moses. So remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's another nuance here that I can't even touch tonight. It's too, it's too high for me right now, but I will have it pounded out before too long. But they are your people. They are your people. Sounds like Jesus appealing to the Father. They're your people. I comprise them now, Father. And he doesn't have to say that because the Father approves of the Son and therefore approves of us. They are your people, your inheritance from whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. So there's a sense that the patriarchs are the first fruits because God loves them. He blesses their descendants. But you say, well, that's kind of a weird salvation. No, it isn't because the ultimate reality of the patriarchs is the root of the patriarchs, which is Christ, and the fruit of the patriarchs or the, the offspring of the patriarchs is Christ. So 
as the first fruits ultimately is Christ, so the root ultimately again is Christ. Romans, in fact, our first look at the lamb in Revelation 5, 5, and 6, he says, look, there is the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but we forgot that phrase in our memory sometimes. The next thing he says, the root of David. He's the root of David, the patriarch, but he's the bright and morning star, and that's because of Balaam's fourth oracle of God, Numbers 24, 17, behold, a star will arise from Jacob. The star that arises from Jacob is the bright morning star who is the root of David. If he arises from Jacob and he's the root of David, he's also the root of Jacob. So ultimately, the root and the, uh, and the first fruits that make Israel holy are not the patriarchs, but Jesus Christ who is the singular seed of Abraham and who has arisen from the patriarchs, but he's also the root of the patriarchs. And I know that's a lot to take in right now, so that we'll, we will fan it out and iron it out in the future. So if you look at Romans fifteen twelve, which cites eleven ten of Isaiah, the root is Christ. He is holy. Ultimately, again, and I keep using that word because it's necessary, he is holy, and so is all of Israel. And so are all the nations. And so is all humanity. And so is all creation, the heavens and the earth. Look at the stars. Your descendants, or your seed, singular, will be like the stars of the sky, infinite in number, Incalculable, incalculable numerically, and the grains of sand by the sea, all the beaches of all the seas, the numbers of the grains of sand. I wouldn't even count a shovel full of them. Wouldn't waste my 10 years time. So shall your seed be. You know what that means? Christ is going to comprise all the celestial heavens. Christ is going to comprise all the earth represented by the grains of sand. Christ is going to comprise all things. And because the Father loves to dwell in his Son, the Father will dwell in his Son as his Son comprises everything. And so God the Father's future is to be all in all. So that's... Riding the high places. And if you want another reference, there was a movie, I call it a geezer western. Before Unforgiven, there was Ride the High Country with two of my favorite people, Randolph Scott and Joel McRae. And they're both old. And the West, I love the westerns where they're the last of the guys of that era and they're on their way out and nobody else understands them anymore. Ride the High Country, 1962. I went to the theater and saw it, and I loved that movie. But what are we doing? And the Spirit reminded me of that today. Remember that movie you liked so much? Yeah, I loved it. You're riding the high country. And it just dawned on me, that means I'm a geezer. But uh, that's it for tonight. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your precious word again tonight and to see indeed a glimpse of Jesus in the mirror of the word.
to see indeed a glimpse of Jesus.